My name is Dane. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Tammy, and uh, everyone that comes here early to set up the meeting. I appreciate it. I appreciate having a place to come and hang out with you guys on a Saturday morning. Um, I'm a compulsive overeater because if I'm not careful about my habits around food, um, I eat more than my share, and it creates a lot of problems in my life. And this program has taught me to um, contain my eating into normal habits and then force me to deal with everything else that goes on in the world because as long as I was compulsively overeating and unconsciously eating, I really didn't have to deal with other people or a lot of the uh, problems that piled up for me. Um, a lot of this is social for me. If I'm eating three regular meals a day and, and maybe a healthy snack, there's a lot of hours in between that I have to deal with other people and um, that's where this program really comes in and helps. My relationship with food um, was abnormal from the beginning. I remember as a little kid, my favorite times were Saturday mornings. Um, there wasn't a lot of... Uh, I was raised in an alcoholic home, so there wasn't a lot of really strict rules or adult supervision. And I remember Saturday mornings, I would get the big box of cereal and a big mixing bowl and fill it up with cereal and put milk and then get the big bag of white sugar and pour it all over the top and put the cartoons on and just, you know, escape reality. And I loved, like, scraping the syrupy sugar off the bottom of the bowl and drinking it. I mean, even talking about it now, it, the memories just flood back. I don't remember, you know, normal things that people, uh, other people that don't have this quirk might remember. I remember that. And then as I grew up um, and started to make my way in the world and figure out what I was going to do for a career, um, I traveled out to Western Canada. I grew up in Toronto and uh, I was uh, drawn to the restaurant industry and very quickly became a guy who had a ring of keys to all of the coolers, um, all of the food, all of the liquor in a really prestigious hotel. And I remember my routine in the morning would be I would pour, we had these glass coffee cups and I would pour half of the coffee cup full of uh, Bailey's Irish cream whiskey. This is about 6.30 in the morning. And I'd fill the rest with really strong coffee and cut a big piece of gooey dessert and start my day. And that was just how I lived. And in my 20s, the consequences didn't seem to be that bad. A lot of the reason I came to OA and a lot of my anxiety today is vanity. I'm really, you know, sometimes I can't get away from the mirror in, in my home trying to leave and I'm obsessed with the way I look and or someone will post a photograph of me or I'll see photographs from a vacation, <laughs> excuse me, vacation, and I look like I'm heavy and it just ruins my whole day. Um, and I was the same way in my 20s, but in my 20s I would just eat healthy for a few days and it would just drop right off because of my metabolism. You know, I'd, I'd run an extra mile or something and it would just disappear. So the consequences weren't that severe. Uh, later on, I, I, you know, the alcohol and drugs started to present a huge problem in my life for many years, and my biggest fear of stopping that was that I would become heavy and gain weight, because the one thing that alcohol and drugs did for me was kept me thin. And uh, all of that came to pass. Eventually, I hit bottom and came into a 12-step program and got clean and sober and put on weight, packed on about 50 pounds more than I weigh today. And uh, it's very difficult. It was difficult for me to come into this program um, because I enjoyed the false pride that comes along with having double-digit sobriety and being a secretary at a meeting and feeling like I have it together. You know, all the while I'm just compulsively overeating. And what that looked like was I would work um, during the day. I was a very 
kind of manipulative and angry supervisor or manager or producer. Um, and I would push people around and bully them and manipulate them all day and then just go home at night and unplug the phone or not answer it and order tons of food and just completely eat myself into a state of, uh, into a coma. And I lied about all of it. You know, I was the kind of person that if you showed up um, and I did happen to answer the door and I had just eaten two or three meals and you asked if I was hungry, I'd say, sure, let's go get something to eat. You know, my whole life was a, a complete lie and it became more and more obvious on the outside and harder to shed the weight. So I started a cycle of dieting, you know, and uh, there's always lots of those solutions around and I tried every crazy one that I had heard of and I had a friend who was in the other program with me and we liked to eat together. You know, whenever he lives in Vancouver, he'd come down here on business trips. The first thing we'd do is we'd go to Cantor's or we'd go someplace where you could eat these enormous amounts of food and uh, that was part of our routine. And I went up to uh, Vancouver for a vacation and I ran into him and he had lost like 80 pounds. And uh, I asked him, what's the diet? What's the trick? What are we doing now? Because I love diets, you know, I love like these crazy, you know, you make this soup out of tomatoes and peppers and you only eat it for eight days and then you have a steak and like some kind of program, right? And they work. They work short term. But you know what my favorite day of the diet is? The day it stops. And I can go to 7-Eleven and get a big thing of Ben and Jerry's and just go back to, you know, that's the best thing about diets is the end. Um, the first day off the diet was my favorite day because now I'm thin and I'm, you know, eating like a maniac, like there's a brief moment there that's fun. And then it just gets worse and worse and harder and harder to shed the weight. You guys that have been through this know all of this stuff. And I at one point had this program delivering food to my home, super expensive. And <clears throat> I'd literally be driving home at night with this little bag of, you know, a grape and an apple or whatever it is I'm supposed to eat. And on top of that, a giant bag of like Carl's Jr., you know, and I'm eating that. And somehow, you know, one of the biggest problems that I have is the ability to rationalize and minimize and justify just about every kind of behavior. I can use the literature in our program to justify bad behavior. So I need a program and you know, we're all different. We all come from different social economic backgrounds, religion, no religion, genders, whatever. We, we're not all the same, but the one thing that unites us and the reason we're here is the solution, right? We're all applying this solution to our problem with varying degrees of success. And for me, it works perfectly. Um, so I ran into this guy, he had lost all his weight and he told me he was in OA. And my heart sank. It isn't what I wanted to hear because I knew what I would have to do. I'd have to come in, I'd have to take a welcome thing, I'd have to get a sponsor, I'd have to be accountable to someone, I'd have to start telling the truth about my eating. And I wasn't really ready to do that, but it planted a seed. And, uh, and then I told a sponsee about it and I saw him a week later and he told me that he had been in OA but not told me and had been relapsing for years and because I told him that story he had a week. So now I'm surrounded by all of these people in OA. So I looked in the directory and picked what I thought would be the smallest obscure meeting I could go to to take a welcome chip and I went and it was huge. And I sat at the back and I had to get up to get a welcome chip and, and my wife who's here with me today went with me. Um, you know, I put her through a lot of stuff in my compulsive overeating, a lot of it dishonesty and, you know, manipulation because I just wanted to eat and be alone and overeat, uh, which is not a good person and a good partner in a relationship. Um, but anyhow, she went with me. And so because she was there and I said I would take the welcome chip, I got up to take it and I was walking back and just feeling humiliated. 
and knowing, having an idea about the work that, that lie ahead of me. And uh, I saw someone I knew. And this guy was really fit, and I always thought really had it together. And we talked afterwards for a few minutes, and he's just like me. Same upbringing, same issues with food, and he had some recovery in this program. And that really helped. And, uh, you know, I greet here at this meeting, and uh, Bob this morning told me that when he came to his first meeting, I came up to him afterwards and said hi and, you know, offered to help. So I tried to do that because that was done for me, and it kept me here. Um, not for long, on my way home that night, you know, without thinking, I had the welcome chip on the dash of my car, and I had this program, and I'm going to do it. And I pulled into a place that I used to go and eat and ordered three portions of food and ate it all without even thinking. It wasn't like a relapse. It just was habit. And I got home and woke up the next morning and saw that chip on my bed stand, and I had a choice to make. I'm either going to throw myself into this or I'm going to dismiss it and keep living the way that I had been living. I was working for a production company at that point that uh, needed a film print to go up to Toronto for a few days and someone to babysit it while they're doing screenings, and I volunteered to do it, and I said, I'll pay for the hotel. I just, I just wanted to get away for a few days and get a couple days abstinent, even though I didn't really know what that meant. Had not read any literature, hadn't really paid that much attention at that one meeting. I was mostly thinking about myself. But I thought, I'll, I'll come up with some idea of what I'm going to eat, a very restrictive food plan, and stick to it for a few days. And I did it. And I went to OA meetings in Toronto. And uh, they're different up there. They're small and a little disorganized. But it gave me a few days. And when I came back, I went to the Light a Candle meeting. And uh, again, my wife came with me. And I heard a speaker that really told my story. And I asked him to be my sponsor. And he's still my sponsor today. Now, over the Christmas holiday this year, um, I was traveling. When I got back, I phone him every Sunday night, and we have these conversations. You know, we solve all the problems of the world and, you know, pat each other on the back. But it's really an exercise. He's heard all of my step fives. We do work together. But for me, most of what keeping regular and accountable with a sponsor is, is being in the habit of speaking to him. So when I really need his help, it isn't a 5,000-pound telephone. You know, I just talked to him a few days ago, and it's much easier to call him. So I called him after I'd gotten back, and he he had relapsed. He relapsed over the holiday. And, um, you know, I had to really think about what I was going to do next. My first reaction was shock, because I just assume everybody else has it all together, and I'm the one that's always struggling. But I guess uh, in that moment, he had struggled. He had eaten a bunch of things he shouldn't have, and carried on for a couple of days like that and had maybe three days when I called him. <coughs> I told him I'd call him in a couple of days. I didn't want to burden him with a sponsee when he's trying to get his act together, but I didn't want to discard him either and make it harder for him. I really didn't know what to do. And I talked to a couple of people and I just decided to keep phoning him on Sundays and keep the routine going. Now, I confess, part of it is I don't want to pick a new sponsor that's going to make me do a lot of work that I don't want to do. I got this guy trained, you know. We have a routine going that I'm comfortable with. I don't want to pick someone that's going to make me phone them every day. You know, I hear things at meetings like, oh, my God. Thank God my sponsor doesn't make me do that. So part of it is selfish. Um, and I just told him, you know, you've helped me a lot. You, you know all of my secrets. Let's just see where this goes. And it, that was, you know, Christmas, and it's still going. And... Uh, since then, I've done another step five with him, and it seems to be working. Um, so that's my experience with sponsorship. And my experience with the fellowship, and we were just talking about this um, outside, is I hear people share, and 
for me out there in the world, you know, I work in post-production. There's cakes and candies, all, client like food and booze all over the place all the time. And I don't indulge, but, you know, there's a certain way I have to behave around clients and colleagues. I have to act like I'm normal, like I'm not a compulsive overeater. Oh, no, I don't want any of that birthday cake. I'm not having sugar today. I don't want to get into my whole burden them with all my mental, you know, stories. I'm fine doing it with you guys, but not with the people I work with. I, I want them to think I have it together. So, and most of them don't understand. If you don't have this thing, you really don't understand. Like when I tell people I don't eat sugar, I get all these crazy stories about diets they're on. And okay, fine, but I know it doesn't work for me from my own experience. So I have to put up a front when I'm out there in society with people you know I work in business development there's a lot of client lunches and that sort of thing and I have to behave a certain way it's exhausting it's so nice to come in here and just hear another compulsive overeater talk about the mental gymnastics they're going through because they opened their cell phone bill and it was twenty dollars too high because I just breathe a sigh of relief I'm not alone there are other people that aren't you know that don't have it all together and whose solution is is you know messing around with food and when I hear that, it can be someone I've never spoken to and will never see again. And I just get this sense of relief. It's like chains being unwound from me. And that's why I come to meetings. So that's sponsorship. That's meetings. Um, my food plan is really simple. I've sponsored a few guys. And for whatever reason, maybe it's just me and the experience I've had. But every guy I've sponsored, uh, when I get them to read the literature and teach them what a food plan is or my understanding of it, encourage them to talk to other people. They always come back with these 12-page, you know, green light, yellow light, red light. I'm going to keep this in the cupboard. I'm not, you know, just these long, complicated things. And I tell them, okay, but, it, you know, my kind of uh, positioning statement on all this is if it's not practical, it's not spiritual. It has to be portable. It has to be something I can remember when the waiter comes to take my order. It can't be, and I don't want to burden everyone else with my problems. So mine is very simple. A couple foods I avoid a couple of regular times a day I eat, and that's it. Um, as a result of that, there's some physical recovery. I've lost about 54 pounds. It, you know, the frustrating part for me is that I shed that pretty quickly. I've been in about six years now. I probably lost that weight in the first year, and I've kind of hovered around the same weight ever since. It drives me crazy. Um, I've tried adjusting things, but thank God I have a sponsor. i got to stay away from this idea that I'm going to diet and control my food and lose weight and get to some magic number on the scale and then everything's going to be fine. It's insanity for me. i got to stay away from it. Instead, what I focus um, on is spiritual development. And I've got a lot of work to do there. I really struggle with the concept of God. Um, I struggle with just, you know, not putting myself first. A lot of behaviors, you know, I recently did... Uh, Another um, step eight, and most of the harm that I did to other people wasn't as obvious and blatant and easy to spot as uh, it had been in years past. You know, my two biggest offenders are gossip and judgment. You know, those are, those are things that create problems for myself and others and my family and uh, block me off from, from recovery. They're also two of my favorite pastimes. I just love it. I love gossiping. I love... If somebody is in a cloister of people talking crap about someone I don't like, I just love diving in and, and it's just not, you know, there's something wrong with me. That's not, that's not, it doesn't help anybody. But being aware of it, sharing it with my sponsor and working on it through the steps has given me a lot of relief. In step one, you know, admitting my powerlessness is the first part and that's saying that I can't 
with my own will and spiritual development and physicality control my relationship with food and it makes my life unmanageable. The way that shows up today is my life is still unmanageable. That I don't think is going to change. I don't believe I'll ever fully recover. I'm always going to have this thing. After this meeting today, I'm just like a drive-through away from going back to live the way I used to live seven years ago. And I need to remember that. And I've seen that happen to other people. Um, so what's the unmanageability? It's my thinking. My brain tells me things that just aren't true and aren't good for me. And I need to develop a practice to, to pause and not act on every bad idea that pops into my head. And I also don't believe it's ever going to stop. Um, it's gotten a lot better. And the more I practice uh, my spiritual development, the less power it has over me. But it's there. That's what's wrong with me. That's why I'm here this morning. It didn't go away. I wish it would. Uh, I don't think it will. I can use it to help other people, but it's there. In step two, you know, there's a promise of being restored to sanity, being able to act and behave like a normal person, being able to eat like a normal person. You know, a couple of my things is I don't like eating in front of other people. I don't like people being around when I eat. I eat a certain way in public and another way in private. You know, that stuff is, is I'm still working on that stuff. In step three, I'm asked to turn um, my way of life over to a power greater than myself. And it was too big a leap for me in the beginning. But a very wise person that I met in this program told me that OA is a power greater than myself. Most of us who are sitting in this room that were here last week stayed abstinent all week. Somehow together, we're able to do this thing. So I can turn my life over to that. What does that look like? I can take a service position. I can listen to what people say and try it. I can talk to people in this program. I'm now turning my life over to something greater, OA. It's not God yet. It's not, it may not be the lofty spiritual you know, beliefs some people have ascended to. I'm not there yet, but OA is pretty powerful, and it's much more powerful than me. So that's a good place to start, and now I can go into step four. Three inventories. Resentments. You know, what are these recurring negative thoughts that I have? And what is the button that I'm pressing to activate them? What's that fourth column? What am I doing? What's the charge I'm getting out of judging someone or reliving a negative experience? How is that warping my life? Fear. You know, we bracket the word fear beside our resentments. Most of this stuff boils down to the deep, deeply held belief that I have that you guys are all headed off someplace great and have the secret to life, and I'm not. And eventually, it's all going to fall apart. I'm going to get left behind. And I can act like I have it together and I'm there with you, but inside I know I'm, I'm not, I don't have what it takes. And uh, that hasn't gone away, but just being able to say it out loud and laugh about it is, is a, a remarkable. And then the last one is my sexual inventory. It's a list of the people... I've been with and, and how I treat people and how I show up in relationships and I've gotten a ton of recovery there as well. The next step is five. I'm sharing it with God, myself, and another human being. Well, myself, I just review the list. That's easy. I've been sharing stuff with myself for years. Thank you. Um, the next step, sharing it with another person, that's not that hard either because my sponsor, is, you know, I've been talking to him every week. He knows this stuff. There isn't too much shocking in there for my sponsor, Bob, but um, sharing it with the higher power. Now, I, you know, I'm not going to get up here and read my step five. So what does that mean? I'm going to have to do a little more development. I'm going to have to explore this idea of what a higher power is. And I could talk for an hour about that. And if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, we can. But I've come a long way. Most of it is in nature. It's like the unexplained phenomenon in nature is kind of what I use as evidence of a higher power. There are things going on that we can't explain. You know, do you ever think of someone and suddenly they phone? That sort of stuff. You know, I don't need to explain it to be able to use it. 
I don't need to explain this to be able to use it, and I don't ever question this, you know. So stop, resign from the debating society, move on. Six and seven, six is the becoming entirely ready. What does that look like? Well, if I want to become entirely ready to stop gossiping, let me try for a day to stop gossiping and see in which areas I, I'm not able to do it. I'm able to do it in every area except around the dinner table with family. That leads me to step seven. I've been humbled. I can see that in 80% of the instances I can stop it, but somehow when this person talks, I just can't help myself. Now I need help from a higher power. I've ex exerted all the energy I can and I'm falling short and I need to get over the hurdle. So now I really start to pray to this higher power. That's step seven. Humbly asking. There's a performance that's required with me. I had to do the work to figure out exactly how that shows up in my life. And now I have to ask a higher power to relieve me of it. I've got proof that I can't do it on my own. And I have a choice. Once I get a handle on that, it's about amends. It's making a list of the people I've harmed. The best and most powerful amends are sitting down, looking someone in the eye, admitting what I've done, and then just listening. Because I get to hear who I am and how I show up for other people. And then I have a choice on how I want to proceed. Step 10 is just daily cleanup, looking for fear, resentment, anger, how these things show up in my life and taking action. Um, in 11, taking that quiet time, and I do this every morning, just sit, pray, and meditate. Um, and 12 is, is doing what I'm doing right now, showing up and being of service and carrying the message. And outside this room, it's slowing down, letting someone get in front of me in the lane, holding the door open, listening to someone that needs to talk, helping people, looking for ways to get out of myself and, and improve the world around me. Um, that's it. That's who I am. Thank you very much for, uh, for listening to this. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of OA as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. You are being recorded. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Um, and if you could, please restate the question. Oh, I'll restate the question. Never mind. That's an instruction for me. Um, anyone have any questions? Thank you. So, uh, the question is about sponsorship and sharing my experience with that. Um, I, uh, I think one of the valuable tools in this program is the literature. There's a really great orange-colored uh, document called Questions and, uh, Questions and Answers on Sponsorship. And you can actually look it up online, free. And what I do when someone asks me to sponsor them is I get them to read that and come back to me and underline anything that they think defines our relationship. How do you see sponsorship? And there's some great information in there. There's some things, by the way, in there I don't agree with, but it's a basis for discussion. The first thing that happens is eight out of ten people I ask to do that exercise, I never see again. You know, they're just not, so it saves me a lot of time chasing somebody around that just thinks having a sponsor is a cool idea, but they're not really, they don't really want to do anything about it. Um, yeah, there's this one guy, I said that to him three years ago, and I still see him at meetings, and he says, oh, I'm going to get that pamphlet and get that done. It's never going to happen. Um, and then, basically, I just have them underline it, I discuss it with them, and I keep that uh, pamphlet, and that defines our relationship. How I know I'm ready, I think, is once I've done step four, I'm ready to start walking someone through the uh, program. And the reason for that, personally, 
is because of the spiritual component of this program. I don't want to do any damage. I want to at least have explored and expanded my spiritual life before I start working with somebody else. And I strongly encourage people that I work with when I do step two to get advice and build a network of other people. Don't, I'm not a mentor. I'm not the single voice of recovery. Or you're in trouble if I am. <laughs> Right. I'm wondering, in a general way, sure. um, with your fifth steps, how it's yeah, it's it's really tricky, and uh, one of the reasons I stayed with my sponsor is because he's in both programs, so it solves some problems for me. I don't need to have two sponsors and two programs. I've done. Um, I do the fifth step differently, a little differently each time, but the first time I did it in OA, he had me just read five pages a day out of the 12 and 12, and then answer any questions in writing and discuss it with him as things came up, and that forced me to do an OA fifth step with him. The most recent time we did it, we did it out of the big book. So when I do it out of the big book, I re-replace alcohol with food, and you know the truth is when you read that literature, 90% of what we're dealing with there has nothing to do with the substance or the action. It's my behavior, the way I treat others, my thought processes. But it's tricky, and I think that uh, it's something that has changed for me over time. And it was a huge uh, question mark when I came in here. Well, what am I going to do now? Get a second sponsor and you know play one off against the other? Or how is this all going to work? So I've been very fortunate to find someone that's in both programs. If I didn't, I would probably just stick with an OA sponsor because, you know, this, this may sound a little controversial, but I'm much more likely to indulge and lose my sobriety, my sanity, and my abstinence over food than I am over substances today. I feel like I'm on a pretty solid footing. Um, not that I would stop going to those other meetings, but I feel like the sponsorship and the work that I need to do is here. It's around food. For me, it was there before I started any of the other stuff, and it's still something that uh, I struggle with today. So, Diane, um, could you talk about the way you do 10, 11, and 12? Sure. So 10, um, there's a there's a great line in the big book um, uh, um, around step 10, and it's uh, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not someone that can quote it verbatim. But it talks about the proper use of will. One of the things that bothered me about this program was all this talk about, you know, powerlessness and weakness. And I just felt like, well, I'm not a weak person. I know I've got examples in my life where I really forced my will in a situation and it, it turned out in a really positive way. I'm a determined, disciplined person, except when it comes to food. So there's, there is an exception there that's really important. And what it says in step 10 in the big book is, you know, if it's, if it's helping other people, if it's for spiritual development, if it's around honesty and trust and faith, we can bombard that issue along those spiritual lines with will all we want. This is the proper use of will. So I love that. I love that I get to use my willingness and stubbornness and in, in just redirect it in a positive way. So it's not telling me to be weak. Um, what that looks like is I look for fear resentment, judgment, and gossip in my daily life. And as soon as they show up, I take a minute and pause. I say a prayer and I make a mental note. And um, at the end of the day, before I go to sleep, I think of everybody I've come in contact with that day. 
and imagine what they would say if someone were to ask them, what was your interaction with Dane like today? And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's a good reaction. Um, and then if there's a really clear roadmap there of what I need to work on. I don't need to go and do a big step four and make it into a big deal. It's really clear where I need to apply myself. Step 11, I sit in the morning and meditate. What that's like for me is I just sit quietly and breathe. Um, I like getting up early. The early morning hours have become my favorite part of the day. I don't have other people around. I don't have distractions. I don't go to the internet. Um, you know, I make a cup of tea and I just I read from daily reflections or one day at a time, get some positive thoughts going and just sit and reflect uh, quietly. And then I make a mental list of the things I'm grateful for because that's evidence that there's a God, a higher power. I, I just think of the work that I do and the relationships I have and maybe material things I have, opportunities, experiences, um, things that I would have missed had I continued eating and behaving the way that I was. I was isolated and I was killing myself with food. Um, not instantly like you would with some other substances, but that's where it was all headed and it's all changed. So once I start that positive thought process, then I go into my day and start interacting with other people. And step 12 is, you know, the, the expression that I heard early on was you might be the only big book that somebody meets. You know, if I don't wear on my sleeve the fact that I'm in this program, but I like to think that if somebody found out that I was in this program, that it wouldn't surprise them if the program is based on being honest and helpful and I like to think that that's the way I'm viewed. And I've had some great experiences in the last few years where I'll be in the studio and I'll turn a corner and I'll hear people talking about me, but they're saying really positive things. Or people will say, well, you're reliable. We don't need to worry about you. And I just think, wow. <laughs> Remarkable. Thank God for OA because it's not me. I'm not reliable. I'm not any of those things. Um, unless I practice this program. So that's 10, 11, and 12 from my understanding of it today. Sure. So um, my dad is an alcoholic who left when I was very young, and my mother is an active alcoholic uh, who raised us to the best of her ability. Both of my siblings have drug and alcohol pro uh, problems. None of them are in recovery. Uh, my father just solved his drinking by being angry. He doesn't drink anymore, but he's, you know, he's, a, he's got a lot of dogs and guns and he's, he's, not, a, he's not a happy guy. Um, and he's not a good neighbor and he doesn't help a lot of people. Um, it, but when I got into this program, it was pointed out that the way I'm going to solve a lot of my family of origin pro problems is to just let them know where I am and be accountable. So I'd send them birthday cards and greetings on holidays and uh, gradually over time I've formed um, a set of boundaries with them and I'm very close to all of them. They all know where I am. I'm accountable to everyone. Um, and I've had brief stints where my sister has been in recovery um, and, and back out and my mother was in recovery. Uh, the best example I can give you of that is um, I got married uh, a few years ago, six years ago, and I married into a very conservative Jewish Persian family um, that all live in this neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. It's very funny. You have no idea. And uh, I converted to Judaism to marry the woman I love. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a misfit in that community, but um, 
bigger misfits than me or my family. And so the wedding day was coming, big Persian wedding, and my family's coming in from Canada, and I just described my family, and I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be the biggest disaster ever. And it went perfectly well. My mother um, had left her third rehab and, and was sober at that period of time, and everybody behaved well, and everything went well, and uh, you know, I really thank her for that. I feel like she did that for me because she's unable to do it for herself. She's still in really pretty bad shape right now. And as soon as all of those pressures are off, she went right back to drinking. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen with any of them. I have a good relationship with them. I talk to them regularly. But uh, I don't have the closeness that I have with some of my friends in the program because we just don't open up because they're stoned and drunk all the time. And, you know, that's just the reality. Yes, uh, I came into the first program before I was married, and then uh, yeah, actually, but yes, yes, I came into the program before I was married. I had a moment. Um, so one of the people closest to me is someone that introduced me to this program, and we're standing there at the wedding in front of everybody, and there's the wedding cake, and the the deal is, you know, you eat the wedding cake, and my abstinence is no sugar, and I'm like, oh my god, what am I going to do? And my friend says to me, you can't eat that cake. It's a relapse. And that put even more pressure on me because I thought, you know what, I'll just eat it and figure it out later. I need to do this. And everyone's looking at or I felt like everyone was looking at me. I'm sure a few people were. I'm the groom and I'm up there with my wife and the cake and everything. So I just took a gentle bite and just wiped my mouth with a napkin and spit it out and set it down and kept my abstinence and it all just worked out. But it was, and that person that told me, you're going to break your abstinence and is now 300 pounds and relapsed and you know just didn't hang on to it and it was a powerful lesson for me I mean you can't I can't wear this too tightly I can't be too restrictive or I'm gonna relapse and I'd rather be a little bit you know have a little bit of margins with my food plan than be where he is today which is killing himself with food unfortunately my pleasure. Um, how uh, how has being in OA uh, uh, affected your your first program that you that you uh, I, It's uh, parallel. I don't think that uh, I think that all the stuff that I was dodging in the first program is right in my face in OA, and I look at it all as one program. It's one problem. I have a mental quirk that uh, has me behave in ways that normal people don't, and um, just because I'm not. Uh, indulging in drugs and alcohol doesn't mean that it stops. And, and by the way, just because I'm abstinent doesn't mean that it stops. A lot of times when I do that step 10 inventory, if you were to ask those people that encountered me that day, there would not be a single good report. I'm not, you know, this is not solved for me. There's something different about me. And if I'm not careful with it, it's, it creates huge problems. So I don't get into too many distinctions between the two programs. I participate in both of them and look for the commonalities and, and leave the rest out. I also believe what uh, I have a sponsee who says if you're over 10 years in one program and you're only in one program, you're probably in denial about something. So. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it, it, it is for me. Um, you mentioned that you had lost the initial weight and then last time you were frustrated with it. Uh, what, what do you think are you doing about it or doing to come to peace with it? Um, what I'm doing to come to peace with it is talking to my sponsor about it a great deal. I tried, some of the things I've tried unsuccessfully were adjusting my food plan and making it more restrictive. 
Anytime I make an adjustment in my food plan, the deal is I have to run it past my sponsor and be accountable to him. He's never told me what to do or not to do, just be accountable. And he always cautions me, this sounds more like a diet, but let's go ahead and try it. And what happens is I don't lose the weight. And so the reason for me making this adjustment was to lose weight. So when it doesn't work, I abandon it and, and try something else. I've also tried um, Muay Thai boxing for two years. I never did martial arts before in my life. And I started it with a friend and I thought, I'm, this is great. I'm going to lose weight and I'm just a big guy at the boxing class. You know, it's like, I guess what, to answer your question is I, I get less upset these days at what I see in the mirror and what I see in photographs and I'm more accepting of other people that have different body shapes. It just doesn't... I have this mental image of perfection in my head and, uh, you know, I'm 55. I'm probably not going to ever get there without surgery or something I'm not willing to do. So it's a process. Carol? Thank you so much for your share. So two questions. One, how did you manage to hide that Boot and a boot and sorry. No, my real question is: you mentioned at work, you know, that you occasionally overhear people talk nice things about you being That's a great question. Thank you for asking about how my work life has changed by being in this program. I think the biggest um, tool that I use is that quiet meditation time in the morning, at least three times in every work day. I work in post-production, so basically what that means is you have a crazy artistic person, a person that's paying the crazy artistic person, and they're both pointing at you to achieve the impossible. And, you know, if they both... You know, if everyone was to put their cards on the table about what they wanted, everyone would realize it's impossible. So you're constantly, you know, being honest and supportive and moving towards a defined goal. So what um, helps me a great deal when I get anxious, when I get an email or a phone call or somebody drops something in my lap that seems impossible to solve, is mentally I just return to my living room in the morning in the quiet time and I remember the things I'm grateful for and... Uh, I get emotional thinking about it, this tool. It's really powerful. I, uh, I recognize I have a higher power, and I'm lucky to even be in the situation I'm in. I'm fortunate that anyone is even feels that I'm qualified to even have this level of a discussion with them. And then it kind of doesn't matter. It's going to sort itself out. I'll apply spiritual principles. Sometimes it ends in tears and disaster, and sometimes it works out. But, uh, you know, I'm able to soldier through. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to use negative, manipulative, uh, dishonest means to try and position myself and save myself from something that's going to inevitably happen anyway. I'm just a soldier. I'm just on the path. It's all unfolding. Um, And the less I fight it, the the easier my life goes. So on a good day, I'm able to do that. Not always, but on a good day. In the back, John? Yeah. During the day... Uh, that's a great question. During the day, the way that I keep in touch with my higher power is um, I will go uh, into my office and close the blinds and take a few minutes and do a breathing exercise. I go outside 
leaving you know a physical building and just going outside into the sunlight is a great way um, to do it and then one of the most important ways is regular meeting attendance I try to get to as many meetings as I can and prioritize that especially when I travel something about you know travel and hotel rooms and it just feels like you know my disease checks in before me you know it's like I'm just I can I'm I somehow the normal rules don't apply when I'm up up in the air or in another you know so I try to keep a tab on that I do I keep sugar in the house I keep alcohol in the house there was oxycontin in the house at one point I uh I don't have it. My time's up. So, yeah, that's my answer. Um.